0: It is wonderful to see you this morning and to be able to look out in the congregation and to be able to bring the Word of God to you. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59, and that happens to be uh, page 895 in your pew Bibles. So I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 8, verse 48. Jesus uh, has just been talking or really sparring contending with the Jews in Jerusalem this coming up toward the end of the feast of tabernacles old chapter 7 and 8 took place during that time just a period of a little over a week and Jesus had asked them he said which of you convicts me of sin and if i tell you the truth why don't you believe me Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And that brings us to our text. The Jews are responding. They answer, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. In other words, my glory from you. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now, we know you have a demon. Abraham died. As did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The you said to him, You are not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Our Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I'd just like to uh, begin by having us recall how many uh, remarkable things Jesus has just been teaching in this week, seven or eight days, that he was at the Feast of Tabernacle. It's, it, it's quite remarkable. I'm going to read three quotes. I want you to listen to them carefully. You'll see a pattern in each of these uh, quotes that links them together. But the first quote is John 7 37, 38. That's where Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John 8, verse 12. At that same time, Jesus taught, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then in John 8, 31 and 32, he'd said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now each one of these quotes is an amazing promise. A promise to you grounded in who Jesus is. Because if it was not for him, These promises would not be for you. They would not be for you at all. They would not exist. You know, when we talk about hope as Christians or people, human beings, I hope for this, I hope for that. This is my hope, that is my hope. These are hopes, human hopes, they're all maybes. Maybe this will happen. I want it to. But when God gives us hope. That hope is not a maybe. That hope is a certainty. Now we come to the fourth statement that Jesus made. Um, It's the most daring of all. But because it's the shortest, uh, because it's buried in the midst of a contentious debate, uh, I, I don't think that we memorize it very much. We certainly don't quote it very much. Not as much as we do those first three, but today I hope you will memorize it, and I hope you will begin to quote it. It's verse 51, astonishingly bold. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, I want you to say that with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So what is the promise? He will never see death. One more time. He will never see death. Yes. The Jews had just insulted Jesus with the worst insults they could come up with. He was a Samaritan. In fact, not only was he a Samaritan, he was a demon-possessed Samaritan. It didn't get any more insulting than that. But hearing what Jesus just said, This promise. He says, now we know you have a demon, they say to him. Abraham died. The prophets died. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And that was the question. It had always been the question. It's still the question today. Because unless... Jesus was greater than the prophets, unless Jesus was grander than Moses, unless Jesus was superior to Abraham, he could not possibly make a promise like this. You know, he didn't say God said. This is a personal promise from him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, who does he think he is? Now, he'd already answered this in terms of his relationship to God, that he was the son of God and that God was his father. And uh, back in chapter 5 of John's gospel, the Jews had concluded simply from Jesus speaking in these terms of his being the son and God being his father that he was making himself out to be equal with God. And they hated him for that. But now Jesus says more pointedly, most Pointedly. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That's not before Abraham was, I was, which was, which would suggest his preeminent or pre-existence that existed from eternity. But he says, before Abraham was, I am. And what Jesus is doing here, you have to understand, is that he is taking to himself the name that God exclusively that God only used of God himself. And he applies it to himself. Jesus takes it to himself. The only one qualified to name that name, I am, is God. And that's why this name for God is considered to be the most holy name for God. It's in the first person. I am. It's a name that God exclusively uses exclusively to refer to himself. Psalm 25 verse 27 teaches it is inglorious to seek glory for yourself. It's, it's really ignominy. It's the opposite of glory. It's inglorious to seek glory for yourself. And I guess the question is, certainly the Jews thought this, was Jesus seeking glory for himself? And I guess in answer to that, maybe some of you wonder about that today. Many people, I think, attribute to Jesus some sort of uh, megalomania, perhaps. I just want to say that if, that if that was what Jesus was doing, if Jesus was seeking glory for himself when he said this, it was the dumbest, Possible strategy. Declaring himself to be God's son. And for God to be his father, let alone saying before Abraham was, I am, is what turned the world against him, to nail him to a cross so he would hang there and suffer there, humiliated until he died. And if he was seeking glory from God, if he was seeking glory from God, what does God say? God says, I do not give my glory to another. What a fool's errand. If he was seeking God's glory. In verse 50 of our text, Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, one who seeks my glory. And he's the judge. He's the one who determines. He's, of course, referring to as so his father, to his father. Jesus didn't say this because he was self-glorying. He said it because it was true. Now, if anyone else ever claimed to be God's son, let alone to be I am, you can be sure that that person would be self gloring which is why perhaps many today dismiss Jesus out of hand. But Jesus is not like us in that way. He does not possess our arrested egos with their infantile lusts. Jesus was the most God-dependent, and the most selfless person who ever lived. And when he says in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, I would just encourage you this morning to take that to your own heart and into your own life. Take it deeply there, because it was true of Jesus. It is so much truer of me, and it's so much truer of you. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. What are we living for? And how are we living our lives? And what's most important to us? So what does this mean? What does this mean to us? That Jesus should declare that he has always been and will always be what he is, I am. What does that actually mean? And uh, I suppose one of the things we would say, of course, is that it, it means that if he is always I am, then he's eternal. He's eternal. Jesus is eternal. It certainly means that, doesn't it? And I agree with you. But as we have seen, Jesus was saying more by this. And to put it from our frame of reference, our point of view, what Jesus is telling us is that he is eternally relevant. He is, to quote the King James Version of Hebrews 4.13, he is always the one with whom we have to do. Regardless of whether or not Christ is before us in our mind, our heart, our being, we are always before him. Always before him. He is the I am. And the fact that Jesus is eternally relevant to us means that his word is eternally relevant to us. And when I say it, it means his word is eternally relevant to us, I'm not simply referring to his words, but to the entire message of his life. His 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 message, his words, his death, his resurrection and an exaltation, his promised return, our resurrection, the judgment and the making of all things new. If Jesus is eternally relevant, then that makes his word eternally relevant. And what that means is, What that means is that relativism is thrown out the window. Relativism in regard to morality and truth, relativism in regard to spirituality are out the window. This notion that God is or that truth is or that the good or the right is whatever I want to make it be, whatever I decide that it is, whatever I imagine it is, it's out the window along with every other form of human egotism. He is the I am. He is eternally relevant. His word is eternally relevant. There is no such thing as relativism in truth or morality or in relationship to God. There is not. It is a lie. And it is a myth that we would live that way, to our shame. His word is the truth. It's truth because he is I am. And what this means when he says, of course, is that his word can never fail to be true, and his word could never fail to come true. That's why he says this. This is is what it means to be God. He's different from us. His word can never fail to be true. His word can never fail to come true. This is what it means for God to be God. This is what it means for God to be I am. Think with me for a moment about Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, things yet to be done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. The very first thing the Bible teaches us about God, besides the fact that he exists, the very first thing the Bible teaches us about God is that he speaks and it is. That's the first thing the Bible tells us about God. This entire creation is the result of words he spoke. He spoke them. And it came to pass, this entire creation. And John tells us that he spoke these words through his son. And the fact he spoke these words through his son makes them no less certain, makes them no less powerful, and makes them no less certain and no less powerful at the time of creation than it did at the time he spoke them in his earthly ministry. He said, and it was true, the words he spoke were the words God gave him to speak. So for Jesus to say, I am, means that he is eternally relevant. His word is eternally relevant. It cannot cannot fail to be true. It cannot fail to come to pass. And that's why relativism is just out the window. And this is the weight then. This is the the weight, the gravitas that Jesus puts behind his saying, behind his promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So in that answer to the question, who do you make yourself out to be, this is what Jesus makes plain. His word is the truth. It doesn't just now understand what that means. His word doesn't simply describe truth, but imparts its life. The life of truth. The life with God that is associated with truth, that comes from truth. Truth is life imparting. God's truth, always life imparting. And that's why he says we are to keep it. That we're to guard it. We're to keep it in our heart. Not like a, Prison keeps a prisoner, but like a castle guards and safeguards its king. We are to treasure his word in our heart. Because God's word, Christ's word, is the very means, the very expression, the mediation of life to us, eternal life to us. So it's with all these things in mind we have to, we should hear. Please keep this in mind when we hear, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Because I agree with you, on the face of it, and that's the way the Jews read it, on the face of it, it is preposterous. I realize right now in our life as a church that a number of us are struggling We're struggling with death. We're struggling with dying within our congregation. We're struggling with it uh, within our families in many cases. In fact, I added it up the other day. You know how many people are struggling with death and dying in our congregation? It's never been higher. It's about 300 So we really need to hear this promise. There is, a life that, there is a life that physical death, the death of the body, absolutely cannot extinguish. There is life for your body, which draws its breath from the air. But there is also life for your spirit, which draws its breath from God. And that is what Christ is talking about. When we Christians talk about sensing God's presence, I think often, most often, what we mean is that we do feel God's breath in us. We don't see God, but we feel his breath in us. God's breath is his spirit as truth, and it is His truth, His Word as Spirit. God causes us to feel His breath within us. And we are moving and we're being swayed. And it's profound and it's not of us. It's all about His Word, it's all about His Spirit. This is the breath of God. This is the life God gives. Before I was a Christian, I was physically alive. But my spirit was dead. It's not that I had never felt God's living breath before, but that my spirit could not feel his living breath. My spirit could not know his presence because my spirit was dead. Dead to him. But when I learned about Christ as a young adult, when I embraced Jesus with faith, that's how I embraced him. That's how I began to love him. That's how I opened my heart to him, was with faith in him, putting my faith in him. I found that his word, the Bible, my little white leather King James Bible I got when I was eight or nine years old, I found that that word was not only for the first time, making sense to me, but it was moving in me. And if, the, and if the Spirit of God is a stream of living water, then Scripture was the well. That doesn't mean you always have to be in the well to enjoy the water, but you know that you shouldn't get too far or too long away from the well if you want to keep enjoying that fresh and sweet water because it's the well for the water. And I realized as a young Christian, 20 years old, I was a millennial before there were millennials, you see. I realized that I had life that my body had not conveyed to me. It had not conveyed this life to me through my physical senses. It had not conveyed this life to me through my mind, through the things I drank, through the food that I eat, I realized that this was transcendent life. This was God's breath in me. I realized it. I really had eternal life. So this morning, what I'd like to suggest to you is that the moment of death for the Christian. The body surely dies, but Jesus said you will never see death, Christian. That the moment of death for the Christian is something like the moment of birth for a baby. It will be something like the moment of your birth as a baby. When, when the baby, and I'll use he here, I'm not going to keep switching back with the genders. It gets so confusing. But something like the moment of birth for a baby when he is just emerges from the womb. But we were singing, How Great Thou Art. I was looking in the back and my daughter, Rachel, is holding my grandson, Pax. And I'm thinking, yes, God, how great you are. And the baby first emerges from that womb. He's cast out from the only world that he's ever known. A world within his mother. I say he's cast out. He has been physically dependent upon her to receive everything he has needed in order to live. And this physical dependence had occurred, had been mediated to that child through this wonderful, large, physical part of him outside what we will call his body. But it was a huge part of his body. It's called the placenta. And you can believe me that he had been deeply attached to his placenta. But now through the trauma of contractions and this descent, which was totally new, all the security and all this familiarity are taken from that child. Everything that infant has known up to that point is now disrupted. And at that moment of birth, when he is cast out and fears he has been abandoned, he he gasps. And instead of dying, he inhales wonderful, miraculous breath for the first time. He immediately and directly comes into contact with his breath. Immediately. (gasps) Immediately. His lungs fill with air. He didn't even know he had lungs. He didn't even know why he would have lungs. He had no idea what that was even about. It was all a mystery to him. He was clueless to it. And yet, he's filled with breath. His lungs inflate with air. And he was made for this. And nine months in the womb, all that time inside of his mother, all that time connected with his placenta was to prepare him for this. And he takes that breath. And he is welcomed. And he is loved. And for the first time, the one who has been loving him so dearly all along... He now sees her and he hears her voice. It is familiar to him, but now clearer and more vibrant than ever. So yes, a part of him, a huge part, a mass of him has been left behind, but who cares now? He is new life in a new place, surrounded with unfathomable love. Think about birth. It's astonishing. Say, what an amazing plan. Who could ever, whoever who designed that? It wasn't a mother who designed that. It was God who came up with it. It is God who came up with it. It all happened exactly as it was supposed to. And Jesus is saying, Christian, it will happen exactly as it is supposed to when you die. You will never see death. Do you believe that? It is true. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You know who he's speaking to. He's speaking to infants in the womb. He's talking to you. He's talking to you, Christians, so that you know what lies ahead. So you know. He's giving you hope, not your maybe hope, his certain hope. I am. I am. This is my word. I speak it. And he speaks to you who are not Christians. So that you know that when Jesus was born into this world, he was coming for you. He was coming for you. Will you give yourself Him. People say, well, why why can't all this be true? You know, quite apart from from Christ. The answer is, why can't? Because it's not. Because it's not true. Because Jesus is the truth. And all reality is integrated. And it is an incredibly demonic lie broadcast a million ways through this world every day. That though he came and died for sin and rose from the dead, you ain't gonna find his, not gonna find his cadaver, and is exalted and is coming back. That we can live as if it's not so. In fact, not only we can we can live better because we're not believing some stupid myth. Don't bother me with the facts. Came for you. And I'm telling you, if you trust Christ, when you, I mean, if you unite your heart with his word, you begin to know that life, that life that you have that does not end when you die at all. It expands. It, it multiplies. You have his word on it. Or to put it this way, Christ will see to it. Sometimes I think about, you know, when I die, what am I supposed to do? I mean, you know, like am I supposed to do Is there a ripcord someplace? Is there something? I don't want bl- I mean, I to blow it. <laughs> is there a tunnel when I take a wrong turn? I'm very dull. I don't want to blow it. Jesus will take care of it. Just so he took care of your, your birth. When you die with Christ's word in your heart, in spirit, there's no break in fellowship with God, none. And all your misery and all of your fears and torments and all of your pain and suffering and the body that could no longer serve you will be discarded. And they will be no loss to you. Folks, the fear of death, both conscious and even more subconscious, makes us despair in the present, It makes us flinch at the future. It makes us live uptight lives that are self-regarding, that tend to be consumed with security. The fear of death robs us of vitality to love fully and generously. It does. But to know that because Christ, my Savior, the I am, because of him, I will never see death frees us to live fully in the present, alive in Christ, knowing God's breath in our own spirit, experiencing His spirit as truth within us and His truth as spirit within us. And with all of that comes the courage and all the courage we need to live well and to finish well. And the world needs to see Christians who live well and finish well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word and we thank you for all your mercy and your kindness to us. And I pray now that as we continue in our worship, it would be worship in, in truth and in every way from our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.